When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brinded, head of Yahoo Finance UK. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. This season, we're focused on corporate social responsibility, education and the workforce at a time of global crisis. We're delighted to welcome Steve Frampton, MBE, former president of the Association of Colleges, who is now the chair of Association of Colleges Services Board and further and higher education climate commissioner, who will begin today's episode with a brief talk on whether the education system is fit for purpose in a digital society. Many thanks. Thanks, Xavier. Thanks, Liana. Well, we could kick, it's a very, very short program and just say no, but let, let's explain why, why that isn't the case. And it's not necessarily what I think, is it? Let, let, let's have a look at some of the evidence, really. Um, what about we start with young people themselves? Zurich are having a major global conference based in this country on climate change this month. And they invited 2.5 million young people aged 7 to 17 to say what the major issues were affecting them. 72% of them said climate change. Um, Way above COVID, way above everything else, they see that as a little blip, but they see climate change as permanent. The second thing that they said was the curriculum isn't fit for purpose. And education isn't fit for purpose. We're not assessed radically enough and we're not taught what we need to be taught. We need a values-led curriculum that's fundamentally focused on climate change, mental health and the skills that we need to make a contribution to society. That was seven to 17 year olds. Surely 2.5 million people we voice counted more. A similar survey was carried out by the NUS and their sustainability part, SOS, over 18 months ago, with consistently the similar findings. The curriculum isn't appropriate, it isn't balanced, it isn't going to be what is going to be necessary for, for young people going forward. So if we look at uh, education as being curriculum, delivery and assessment, let's, let's focus on what they did, assessment. And they said the future assessment at the moment is not going to be realised in terms of the potential that we have. We have the digital potential to make that online, anytime, any place. And yet we're still, by and large, delivering the curriculum as the Greeks did and the Victorians did and assessing it in the same way that the Victorians and the Greeks did. There's very, very little difference now between the exams being set in 2022 than there was for 1952. So two whole generations are being assessed in, in exactly the same way. And, that, that, and it's not that there isn't the digital capacity and it's not that there isn't the thought leadership. And there is, certainly it isn't because we haven't done the student voice on this agenda. So I would argue uh, we do need a, a fairly radical review, really, of education in the round the curriculum, its delivery, and its assessment. 
Thank you so much, Steve. That was really fantastic to hear and really great in setting the scene. And we're really interested in unpacking this a bit more because it feels like there's a few elements uh, here to talk about. So first of all, when we talk about the curriculum and weaving in those um, points that you said about climate change and values-led curriculum, how feasibly would it be to integrate some of those items into the existing curriculum before breaking it all apart? Um, what would that, that would be relatively like? straightforward to do, really. I mean, the major drivers of government policy are always going to be DfE policy, if there is a co coherent and consistent one. Um, also, what what you know the the head teacher and principals and staff decide to interpret the rules on, and really Ofsted, and probably as well the the funding implications as well. There are extraordinarily capable um, primary leaders who've already radically reinterpreted the, the guidance for the curriculum and have already made climate change and the themes related to it. Because, of course, you can look at biology, physics, geography, history, communications, maths. You, you can get a massive curriculum from, from this one area, an area that students are engaged in. If you start with something that young people are interested in and build a curriculum around it, it gets progressively more difficult, of course, as we go through secondary and into FE, into HE, where obviously there are external exams. But what we need to do is to have a radical review of all of our curriculum now. The one thing I think educators fear is this could become yet another bolt-on instead of being integrated and mainstream. Um, this needs to be as mainstream as safeguarding. And I think with Ofsted, you've got really powerful, creative thought leaders there who are really interested in pedagogy and curriculum and what, what young people should be learning and how. And I think it's going to be, they'll probably end up being a main driver for change, as well as listening to student voice. Because um, if, if, if we're hearing those number of young people, 2.5 million, saying the curriculum's inappropriate, we've, we've got to change. So... This values-led curriculum you've been talking about is obviously something that's been important since before the pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has helped us get there faster, held us back, or had almost no impact on progressing? Oh, I think it's, it's had a massive impact. It's whether we can sustain it. I mean, um, it's it'll be interesting what people think. My personal view is I don't think there'll be a return to an old norm. I think we'll be recreating new norms. And the sooner we get we get used to that idea, I'm probably going to need to press a reset button on many things. But isn't it exciting, the lessons that we have learned? Um, I mean, one of the great positives for me is if we put aside the digital poverty divide, and, and that's very serious for the 10 to 20% of young people and staff caught in that, but for an overwhelming majority, um, education has thrived in this experience. In fact, there's a lot of data that says for some of those who are more disengaged, the pandemic has been a way of engaging them more if they've had access to the technology and learning. Um, certainly, surely we shouldn't be travelling vast distances to access learning now in the, in the way that we did. Mi mixed mode um, uh, seems to work well as a curriculum delivery mechanism, and I think it's hugely exciting what we've seen. If the government were to have funded, as, as I put in a bid for, the uh, money to invest in those teachers, those fantastic, hardworking, committed professionals who are brilliant face-to-face -face teachers but are nervous about going online because perhaps they don't have the kit and they don't have the training 
Um, and that's not that the institutions haven't done a great job, but they just lack it at the personal level and had an individual mentor in their subject area. I'd love to hear about how, um, you know, in a tangible way, uh, a values-led curriculum and especially um, weaving in the this, you know, evolution of digital education, how does that transfer into skills? Because a lot of these, like naturally, when it comes to climate change, it's imperative for society to address it right now. And it's been like that for years. But for people who are still grasping what values-led curriculum is, how do you translate that into transferable skills to get into the workforce that will help a company, that will help a well, sector? Perhaps I can illustrate that with a, with a case study from my personal experience, really. I mean, prior to me being AOC president and elected to that role by the principals of the country, I was a college principal in Portsmouth. And in 2012, I asked 500 of my students, current ones, future ones and past ones, what would their ideal FE experience look like and why? And they came back with three very well articulated points, two about timetable and one about skills development. The first one they said, Steve, is it actually um, fair? And you talk a lot about fairness that you ask us to come in for timetables at 8.30 in the morning till five with large amounts of breaks. Um, it, does that really work? Is it fair you ask us to work in the areas for private study that you do? And the third thing was on this agenda, um, why are we still using PCs hardwired around the corner of the room when the whole future labour force is going to be handheld, mobile devices, working collaboratively? Because the skills that employers want are digital skills, and those we call them soft skills, but they're far from soft because those are the ones that every employer wants. A lot of them don't necessarily want the, the technology specialists, the, the, the specialists with knowledge, because companies often prefer to do that themselves and train. So what we did in Portsmouth was we changed the timetable to a two-period day, 10 to 1, 2 to 4. Every student had an Apple iPad, and the curriculum was delivered in that way so that they were building up as they were learning the digital skills that they were going to need for our economy going forward and learning to work collaboratively. Um, attendance improved, punctuality improved, engagement improved, all the team working skills improved uh, and their progression rates to HE but also to employment were, were a lot better. It's really, really interesting. There's something before we go on to what you said at the end there that I'd just like to pick up on. Earlier you mentioned the digital divide and you've just mentioned sort of going to more of a digital curriculum. Does the digital divide mean that when you move to that digital curriculum, you see an attainment gap between students in correlation to that? Is there anything we can do to help if so? If it's unplanned, the, and, and as it happened with COVID, it got wider, didn't it? I mean, the one tragedy with this is there were students um, of all ages, primary, secondary, FE, who didn't have access to the right kit, who didn't have access to the right spaces or couldn't access it in real time. Now, if we were to get round that and make the investment in the, the kit for all, the bandwidth for all, there's very little we can do about spaces. But if we made the curriculum materials accessible anytime, anywhere, they could access it at, at a point that was. So sadly, we know for a minority of students that digital divide got wider during, during the, the, the COVID. Uh, period of six months and it will do again if we're not careful as we go into it before however if it's planned and I'll take the example of Portsmouth College between 2013 and 2017 as we just explained and you 
pay for and provide the kit to, to young people free so that they have got it, you, you abolish the di digital divide. You just don't start working on it. You get rid of it. And what it is, it's very empowering because what we found is for some of those learners from more social di disadvantaged backgrounds, you, you give them that kit and they've actually got a lot of the skills already and they value it enormously. So because they've got it and you give them a timetable that's right as well, they do attend and they attend better. They contribute more, they gain more. And, uh, and we saw them get involved in all sorts of activities that they wouldn't have done before. So I, I think the answer is it can go both ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Absolutely. And one of the things um, when it comes to that attainment, um, do you see actually with this drive to open up education as much as possible, more digitized and to change this curriculum, that um, this kind of education becomes more affordable and is something that actually companies can also help, um, not just from a government level in terms of investment, but companies can do to um, either help fund or help put their workforce through these things, even at a junior or high level. Yeah, without a doubt. You change the curriculum, you change how you deliver it, it actually paid for itself. It, it certainly did. I also think it, it, we were able to make much stronger links with our employers. I mean, particularly those in, in the digital sphere, but actually very few industries aren't in the digital sphere now. And, and that's a space they want to get involved with education on. So I, I'm, I'm certain that will be right. There's some, sometimes there's an upfront investment cost. So you, you do need you know, to be able to look at it over a period of two or three years, perhaps even four. But but it is it is but it's also the right thing to do, and I think um in in the book that Chris Lewis wrote, Too Fast to Think, we also need to though balance the the potential of uh, digital and technological overload on people as well, because I think one of the things I'm sure you found is that um the, the working day probably doesn't have boundaries with lockdown because um you you're just absolutely twenty four seven exactly. And if we're not careful, 365 days a year, not even one day off, I think. So uh, I think we just need to be careful of the lessons that Chris identified in there for young people as well. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's really very true and certainly resonates. Yes, that the working day has no boundaries. I wonder if, if we're going to get to a point where school days start to feel like they're losing boundaries as well. And that what you were talking about with the, the morning and the afternoon day keeping that structure is going to be increasingly more difficult as well. I, I think it is, but I think it's really important. I mean, if you look at the very best employers, that they have a working day that's appropriate to need. It's around what you do. It's around outcomes, process. It's not around time. 
one of the things I'm interested in looking at is timetables that reflect that. And when you balance out the mental health consequences for that, let, let's take people who perhaps are primary carers. You allow them to start 10 o'clock in the morning and they can deal with all the other things in their lives that they're trying to juggle. And, uh, and they can still then come to college, go to school and, and attend them freely. And there are some really interesting experiments that, that places from around the world. I, I, I've done some work in China and Japan and New York State. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think people are having a look at the system in its totality, holistically, the curriculum, its delivery and its assessment from the point of view of what, what really is going to work for young people as we go forward and, and help them to acquire the skills level that they're going to need, let's face it, for a very uncertain future. Yeah. And when it comes to that, I mean, one of the big things is that we have been talking about, you know, the younger level and integrating, um, you know, the workforce into it, boundaries, all of this. And one thing that definitely will resonate for a lot of people that will be watching this video or listening to the podcast is that the when it comes to education, society is it fit for purpose the time has moved a lot on that you went to university you went to college you got your degrees you go into a job and you stay on that job track for the rest of your life that has completely obviously changed and especially during um the last few years especially it's been put in the global spotlight about skilling up relearning, changing job tracks, that also takes a very high level of, um, you know, personal responsibility as well to um, find that further education in areas that you haven't done before. So how do we do that in a sustainable way? You've identified the other critical issue, haven't you? It's not what we do in the compulsory ages until 16. It's what we do post-16. But part of a values-led curriculum would be to embed that idea that learning is going to be lifelong. I mean, I think, mm. as you say, there isn't any evidence that contradicts the view that most people will probably have five to seven jobs and, and possibly two to three careers. And people argue, don't they, that 50% uh, of the jobs that are going to be existence by 2035, we don't even know what they are yet. So that's got to be the case. So what we really do need is to have government investment in the area which has been least invested in over the last few years. I mean, the Orga report recognised that it's going to be around adult skills, not those who go to university, but those who don't. It's going to be a level fours and fives. And as you say, it's got to be at a time and a place that they can afford to do it and they've got the time to do it if they're already in work. So what we do need, and I think the Orga report's hugely exciting, I think it's going to encourage government to have a look at how it funds that adult education, traditional evening class, but it's also got to be daytime, but it can also be online as well. Uh, but what we need to do is to encourage a culture whereby we realise that that learning, let's, let's drop the education bit, that learning is going to be something that's lifelong, it's something that's going to start with you in primary and if we get all parts right, the curriculum, the delivery and assessment, people are going to want to. I think the tragedy is so many people have failed in a conventional sense. Too many people and often intergenerational failure as well in some areas. But if we changed it and got it right, that, that, that wouldn't be the case. And, and you're so right. Let, let's get that adult skills area uh, sorted for the future. So when we talk about adults and skills, et cetera, I wonder how much of the responsibility you've mentioned government, you've mentioned 
further education institutions, how much of that lies with the business world? Is there something that the business world should be doing to sort of pick up the slack, per se? Yeah, and I think, uh, and to go back to the other point that Liliana made, it's also down to the individual as well, isn't it? But some individuals will need more support and encouragement than others, and particularly if you've got other challenges in your li- in your lives. Um, and I think that's important. But that is such a good point. And um, but I think we've seen a sea change in that, haven't we? In in, in the last two to three years, and one that, that I don't think will stop, because um, talented people are going to want to work for for good companies that take those responsibilities seriously. I think, yeah, the days of playing lip service to those are long gone. Absolutely. And I know that we're nearly running out of time, but we do have one more question that would, uh, you know, to move this on and leave on this like positive note is that when you say working with the companies and the government, obviously it has to be a whole ecosystem in order for it to work. Yeah. Um, but one of the key things is do you, how do you see working with, whether it's from the colleges itself, um, the places of education and the government, also educating companies in terms of um, accepting people with these different skills. How do companies um, also educate themselves about moving away from when they employ people to just look at that traditional set, i.e., degree certain place and there's a very kind of set track on what they accept to bring people in the workforce versus skilling up new things you could be 40 and you've got this new um you know edu- um you know new certificate in something that wasn't available 20 years ago how do we work through that pain point yeah well i i think moving from that sort of transactional to transformative agenda is is going to be critical I mean, I just think it's dialogue and communication. I mean, the organisation that represents colleges, the Association of Colleges, is there to support not only the colleges themselves, all the staff and students within it, but all the employers al- alongside that. And uh, and I know we would welcome you know, conversations. We already have lots, but but you're right, a lot more. I think the other thing is being really honest about the fact that we know in education that we have a lot that we can learn from good employers but I think what we've noticed in recent years, employers also realise there's a lot that they can learn from good educators. And I think breaking down those artificial barriers and having really meaningful conversations, not about who can, who's better at this or who's better at that, but let's have a look at that common agenda that we all share. You, the word I love to, you use really is we've got to have a look at this as an ecosystem. It, it's not about individual components anymore. It's a bit like when we talk about education, we've got to have a look at it holistically, the curriculum, the delivery, and also the assessment. When we're looking at the agenda that you've just talked about, Liana, it's got to be done in that ecological way where you have a look at all the components because you get one bad bit in an ecosystem and it fails. And if we, if we go back to climate change, you know, it's no point, um, you know, one college or one sector winning on this. It's another collaborative agenda where we've all got to move on this together because it's in everybody's interest that we do. Well, thank you, Steve. If you had one last thing that you wanted the people listening to take away, what would that be? We need a values-led curriculum where climate change is at the heart of it, and we need to devise the curriculum, the assessment and the delivery with young people co-constructed. The the ideas, I think, of of imposing anything on anybody anymore, uh, those days are, are, are long gone. 
Thank you so much, Steve. It's been such a pleasure having you on today. Um, but before we go, um, can you tell us, um, tell the um, either watchers or the listeners um, where they can find you and more information on what you've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on the core work on the Climate Commission, um, it's the FEHE Climate Commission. Um, you can access my details from the AOC website. Um, there will be material there and there will be material on the HEFE Climate Commission website in terms of the climate change. I'd be really happy to, for, for, for people to get in contact with me over all the things that we've talked about. Um, and, uh, and if not, always via Xavier and he can pass them on to me if people struggle to find the AOC. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. That's a great pleasure. Thank you very thank much you. for the invitation. Yeah, thank you very much. Really interesting. And for all those that are listening today, you can find videos and articles about this series on the Yahoo Finance UK site. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate, review and subscribe to hear more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.